Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. I want to bring you greetings today from thousands of church planters all over North America that are joining in the mission of God to see his kingdom expanded through the multiplication of the local New Testament church. And that happens because of the generosity of churches and people just like you. Every weekend when you give here at Second Church, every weekend when you invest in the kingdom, you're not giving to a church, you're giving through a church as an investment in the kingdom being expanded because a part of that goes towards exactly what I'm describing through Sin Network, these thousands of churches that are being planted all over North America. That mission is being fueled through your generosity. Uh, David Killebrew's here with me, who also works for Sin Network. We flew here yesterday from Columbus, Ohio. We had a gathering for three days in Columbus, Ohio with about 700 church planters and their wives, all starting new churches in the Midwest. Uh, Last year, had the privilege of seeing 735 new churches started in North America all because of the generosity of people just like you. So on behalf of a lot of church planners that will never see you face to face, just know they are deeply, deeply grateful for your investment to be able to do what they do because of your generosity. So thank you. I also want to bring you greetings today from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada. Maybe you didn't know you had brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm, I'm originally from Alabama, so I'm a Bible Belt guy too. It's where I'm from. But 22 years ago, God uprooted my family, relocated us to Las Vegas, Nevada. We joined in God's activity of birthing a new church there and joining in what he's doing there over the last 22 years has been one of the great joys of my life. But when God called me from Alabama to Las Vegas, you couldn't have picked a city that was further off my radar. Like where I'm from, people don't go to Las Vegas. And if they do, they don't tell anybody, right? Like we don't think Las Vegas is hell from here, but we think you can smell it from there. Like it's close, right? Uh, But that's exactly where I've spent the last 22 years of my life. It's where I've raised my family had the privilege of being a part of a, a church plant there. We, we started in our living room 22 years ago with 18 people. Uh, and now 22 years later this weekend, they'll gather about 4,000 people in three worship services with 54 first languages represented in our fellowship, most multi-ethnic, multicultural church I've ever been a part of. Literally, it looks like, like a bag of Skittles got dumped out on Sunday morning. It's black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Polynesian, people speaking all different kinds of languages. You say, people speaking in tongues? I don't know. They're just so many languages we don't even know anymore Um, but it's a beautiful expression of what the kingdom of God is going to look like and we're kind of feel like at hope we're getting a jump start on what heaven's going to look like Uh, but thank you so much for your uh, invitation to be here with you today I want to breathe a word of prayer and then I want to jump into a text so let's pray together father we ask you today to meet with us and God I pray that you would as only you can by the power of your Holy Spirit Take your word and teach us. Lord, speak to us today. Give us ears to hear. And I'd like to ask you right now, just in the stillness of this moment, before we say amen, whether you're here or at the Greenbrier campus today, I want want you to just ask the Lord right now, God, would you speak to me? 
Holy Spirit of God, would you speak to us? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I came across a quote a number of years ago that really marked my life. It's by a man named William James. I don't really even know much about him. I just saw the quote in a book that I was reading. Somebody else was quoting him, but it marked me. And here's what he said. He said, the great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. I don't know how that hits you today or how you feel in response to that, but the first time I heard that quote, everything in me said, yes, I want to live my life for something that's bigger than me. I want my life to matter. It's one of the things I love about this generation today, this young generation that often we, we criticize and we make fun of different things and the way they do things. I think every generation does that to the generation to come. But one of the things I love about the generation that is coming up is they have a longing for significance, that they're cause-driven. They want their lives to matter. When I read that quote, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted to live my life in a way that was going to make a difference and matter. And I guess when you think about the embodiment of that statement, there's never been a group of people that more lived that out than the, than the group of people we find in the opening pages of the book of Acts. If you got your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1 this morning. And in just a moment, I'm going to read some verses from there, a pretty long text of Scripture that I want us to get the story here. But let me, let me give you the quick synopsis of what happens here in the opening pages of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we read the story of the first church plant. And I don't mean the first Baptist church plant. I mean the OG original first church. The very first New Testament church that was ever planted is born here in Acts chapter 2. And on their, what we would call today, their grand opening or launch Sunday, Simon Peter gets up and preaches the gospel and 3,000 people surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how here at Second you measure success in church planting, but I would submit to you if 3,000 people come to know Jesus on Sunday, number one, that's a pretty good start. Amen? I said Amen. There you go. See, one of the things about a multicultural church is when different cultures of worship come together to worship, diff different cultures worship differently. And some cultures are very loud and responsive. So I've kind of gotten spoiled with that. So I may get you to help me a little bit. So if 3,000 people get saved on Sunday, number one, that's a big deal. Amen? Yeah. I mean, that's a big, like we'd all get t-shirts printed up. I was there when the 3,000 got saved. That's what we would do. We'd, we'd be selling them in the lobby after the service. If that's not significant enough, they came back on Sunday number two, and on Sunday number two, they preached the gospel, and so many people got saved, they couldn't even count everybody, so they only reported the number of men. The Bible tells us 5,000 men came to know Christ, plus women and children. So get this, we're two Sundays in, over 20,000 new believers in the very first church in Jerusalem. You want to talk about space problems? We had some space problems out in Vegas. Our church was growing rapidly out in that city. We met in 11 different locations in our first 10 years in Las Vegas. We had to keep moving around. We were like the children of Israel wandering around in the desert. Our joke at church was, come if you can find us, because we never knew where we are going to be meeting week to week. But the early church, historians tell us in six months, over 100,000 people had come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in Jerusalem. Did you hear that? 100,000 people. What's the population of Conway, this, this kind of area here? What's the population? 65,000? 
You imagine if six months from now we could say all of Conway's followers of Jesus? All 65,000, everybody. That's what happened in Jerusalem. And here's what I want you to hear me say. The same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 2 is the same God who's sitting on the throne today, right? Like he's never up for election. He never takes a day off. He never goes on vacation. God is still God. The problem is we simply don't expect God to do that anymore. You want to talk about impact. The Bible tells us that within 40 years, the gospel had reached every corner of the known world. You want to talk about changing the world. We're sitting here today, there are roughly 2 billion people on planet Earth who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And we can have the missiological debate of how many of those are actually evangelical Christians. I'm just saying there are 2 billion people on the planet today that profess to follow Jesus and every one of them trace their faith back to this little group of people in the book of Jerusalem, in, in, the, in the city of Jerusalem in the book of Acts. When I understood that narrative, I began to ask some questions about these people. What was it about them that enabled them to be so mightily used of God? And when I began to do a deep dive into the people in Acts chapter 1, here's what I discovered. They were not people that were highly educated. They were not people of great influence. They were not people with great resources. They were not people that had great creativity or experience in ministry. As a matter of fact, my buddy who I'm preaching for next weekend, J.D. Greer, J.D. Greer says it this way, never was a larger assignment given to a less qualified group of people. Then what enabled them to be so used of God to change the world? Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, I want to read several verses here, and then I want to pull some principles out of this that I think will help us this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1, I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the, if you see it, say it out loud, speaking about the what? The kingdom of God. That's important. We're going to come back to it. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father, for, excuse me, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I find that very interesting. It's not a new thing in the church that we'd rather talk politics than mission. Here's the early church. Jesus about to give them the great commission. What do they want to talk about? Politics. Lord, is now the time you're going to throw Rome out and let us be in charge of the government again as Israel? Listen to what Jesus says. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority. Here's what he said to them. That's none of your business. That's what the Greek says. That's none of your business. That, that, doesn't, that, that, that doesn't concern you. Here's what you do. You trust the Father. The Father's in control. If we're not careful, one of the great undoings of the church in North America is going to be that our zeal for political power rather than the expansion of the kingdom through the mission of God is going to be our undoing if we don't watch ourselves. Verse 8, but you'll receive power. Here's what Jesus said. You, you let politics be controlled by the sovereignty of God. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Here's your mission. You be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's the bottom line. Politics never changed anybody anyway, but the gospel can. Amen. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they, entered the, uh, when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now I know that's a lot of text and listen, to be honest, we could spend the next six weeks just expositing the truth that's in those 13, 14 verses. But what I want to try to do in the minutes that I have left, I want to give you, I want to extract kind of a 30,000 foot view and share with you four principles that I believe we see in this group of people that enabled them to be so used of God to change the world. And here's what I want you to understand. Any one of these four, we can grab and apply to our own life. There's no reason why we can't see God do it again. So here's the first one. They had a faith that produced obedience they had a faith that produced obedience let me say it another way they trusted God and they did what God said now I know that sounds radical but in the day that we're living in when we want to talk strategy sessions and brainstorming and whiteboards and and philosophy it's a pretty radical thing to simply listen for the voice of God and then when God speaks we do what God says but that's what these people did they had a faith that produced obedience. You say, where do you see that in the text? Well, go back to verse number, uh, go back to verse number four. It says that he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He told them, here's what's gonna happen. Here's where we're gonna begin our movement. We're gonna begin our movement in Jerusalem. And what does the text say they did? They went where? They went to what city? Jerusalem, right? It's not a trick question. They went to Jerusalem. Now, you've got to remember what Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was the scene of the crime. Forty days earlier, the citizens of Jerusalem had lined the streets of Jerusalem, and here's what they screamed, crucify him. They said, we don't want your Jesus, we don't want your God, we don't want your movement, we don't want your church, we don't want your ministry, and they literally nailed the door shut by crucifying Jesus himself. And Jesus says, here's the plan, we're going to start in Jerusalem. And here's the crazy part, they did it. Now that tells us some things about them. Number one, they didn't make their decisions based on their feelings. Because here's what I promise you. Nobody felt good about Jerusalem. Like, they thought if we go to Jerusalem, we're going to die. This is not, you did not have to do a demographic survey of the community of Jerusalem to find out if they were open to the starting of a new church in their neighborhood. Like, you didn't have to do that. They had clearly stated, we don't want this. And Jesus said Jerusalem, and they did it. They didn't make their decisions based on their feelings. Number two, they didn't make their decisions based on their opinions. Oh, as Baptists, we're good at that, right? How are we going to decide? Well, let's vote on it. What's everybody's opinion? Listen, if you'd pass out index cards and ask this group, hey, everybody write down the city where we ought to start our movement. Let me tell you what one city wouldn't have been on anybody's card. 
Well, I'll take that back. One smart aleck in the room, probably Peter, right? Peter would have probably said Jerusalem, right? He'd have probably said it this way, though. I don't care where we do it as long as it's not Jerusalem. And yet, where do they wind up starting the new movement? Jerusalem. They didn't make their decisions based on their circumstances. You heard this spiritual statement before. Well, the Lord just closed the door. Let me tell you what Jerusalem screamed. Closed door. Like, you didn't have to ask anybody's input. Do you think they'd be open in Jerusalem to us starting a new church? No, 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 no. You didn't have, they had literally nailed the door shut. And yet the Bible says they started their movement in, of all places, Jerusalem. Why would they do that? Here's why. It's what he said. You know one of the reasons we're not seeing God move in America today? Did you know that North America is one of two continents in the world where Christianity is declining? On continents all over the world, Christianity is exploding, and yet in North America, Christianity is declining. North America and Europe. Here's what that means, folks. We're doing this wrong. We need to be learning from the church on the other side of the world where the gospel is exploding and churches are being planted by the tens of thousands and people are coming to faith in Christ in the midst of radical persecution. You know one of the reasons we're not seeing God move in America today? We've lost the ability to simply hear the voice of God. We don't need to hear from God anymore. We got planning center. We got buildings, we got budgets, we got staff, we got seminaries, we got training, we got experience, we got expertise. We don't need to know what God thinks anymore. We can do church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks whether God shows up or not. They had a faith that produced obedience. Number two, they had a passion that produced unity. They had a passion that produced unity. I want to give you biblical proof that the first church in Jerusalem was not a Baptist church. Now, I say that as somebody who's been a Baptist longer than I've been a Christian. I was a Baptist before I was a believer. I grew up, I, I went to church nine months before I was even born. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Like, I've been a Baptist a long time. But let me prove to you this is not a Baptist church. Verse 14. Here's the phrase, all these with one accord. And that does not describe them riding around Jerusalem in a Honda together, all right? That phrase, one accord, literally means one mind, one heart, one passion. Here's what it means. Everybody in the church was on the same page. Living proof, that's not a Baptist church. You ever find a Baptist church like that? Don't you join it, you'll mess it up, right? Here's what that means. They had all wrapped their hearts around something that united them, meaning this, what divided them, and there was plenty to divide them. If you look at this list, there are two guys listed in the list. Matthew is one of them, the tax collector. Simon, the zealot, was another one. 
If you do a deep dive on just those two names, the Zealots were a political faction who were willing to use violence and force to overthrow the Roman government. The tax collectors were Jews, just like the Zealots, who'd radically gone to the other extreme and so got in bed with Rome that they were given licenses to extort money from their own Jewish people. So within the original 12 disciples, you had as far left and as far right as you could get on the political spectrum and yet there was something that Jesus had given them that brought them all together and it united them because it was bigger than what divided them. What was it? Well, to find it, you got to go back to verse 3. The Bible says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the, I had you said earlier, speaking about the what? The kingdom of God. You know what that is. 40 days, the last 40 days, Jesus was publicly on planet earth. Last 40 days, he was physically present with his disciples. And the Bible says for 40 days, get this, he only talked about one thing. It's almost as if he said, if you forget everything else I said in three and a half years of public ministry, don't forget this, kingdom of God. And you know what's ironic? I've been sitting in Baptist churches my whole life until we planted our church in Las Vegas. I'd never even heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. And yet it's all Jesus talked about. What is the kingdom of God? For for sake of time, let me give you a definition. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. It's the big picture of what God is doing globally. God is moving in this world. You do know this thing called Christianity is not going to always be like this, right? One day somewhere the last soul is going to be ushered into the kingdom of God and then the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and then we will always be with King Jesus, the kingdom of God, representing every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from every corner of the globe, ruling and reigning for all eternity with King Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. And listen, right now, We're living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. You did not hear what I said because if you'd heard what I said, you'd say something back to me. So I'm going to say it one more time to give you another shot. You ready? We are living in the greatest days in the history of of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. Oh, I wish you were more excited about that. Listen, because here's why that matters. God birthed your church for such a time as this. Not so you could have the best worship service in Conway. God birthed your church to join in the big picture of what he's doing all over the world. And the early church wrapped their hearts around it. They didn't care what color the carpet was. They didn't care whether the music was contemporary or traditional. They didn't care whether you wore casual clothes or suits and ties. None of that mattered to them. All they cared was what does it take for us to see the kingdom of God expanded to every tribe, tongue, people, nation on planet Earth. Pastor, you sing today in our churches, we don't have passion. No, we got passion. The problem is everybody's passionate about their own thing. And rather than our passion uniting us, our passion divides us. And we present a distorted view of our God to a watching 
world. Number three, they had a desperation that produced prayer. Desperation that produced prayer. How many of you believe God has a sense of humor? Let me see your hand. If you don't believe that, you're wrong. Where do you think you got yours from? We're made in the image of God. God has a sense of humor. Some of the funniest verses in all the Bible I read to you just a moment ago, and you missed it. You didn't even laugh. You didn't get the joke. One of the problems is we read the Bible so much, we're so familiar with it, we read right over what it's really saying. Go back to verse 9. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. None of you laughed. You're not getting it. Here's how it opens. And when he'd said these things, what did he just say? Acts 1.8. Here's the plan. You're going to be my witnesses. Here's where we're going to start. <laughs> we're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. So get this. He says, all right, everybody lean in. So do me a little, everybody, everybody lean in. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. You're going to be my witnesses. And here's where we're going to start. You're going to start where they hate you. Then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria <laughs> where you hate them. So here's the deal. We're going to start where they hate you. Then you're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. What does that mean? Then you're going to go places you don't know exist and you don't know how to get there. So here's the plan. Lean in. We're going to start where they hate you. You're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go places you don't know exist and you don't know how to get there. And then he starts floating. Ooh. Gone. A cloud lifted him up and received him out of their sight. What does that look like? Did, did somebody write down what he just said? Y'all think he's coming back? You say, you're making that up. No, I'm not. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, what does that look like? And if what happened next hadn't happened next, let me tell you what you'd have found. You'd have found 120 dead skeletons right there with their jaws hanging wide open. You know what happens next? Jesus gets to heaven, looks down, sees them standing there, sends two angels to tell them to move along. You say, you're making that up. I'm not. Read it. Look at it. Verse 10, and as they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, guess what they said? What are you doing standing here looking up into heaven? And everything changed with this next phrase. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, here it is, will come in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. And as soon as they heard it, they ran down off the Mount of Olivet. They ran across the Kidron Valley. They ran up into Jerusalem. They ran up into the upper room. They slammed the door and they pulled out a whiteboard so that they could begin to dive up their, divide up their community and do demographic surveys so they could understand the best way to establish felt needs and take the... Is that what happened? Now, what does it say they did? They got on their face before God. And they began to beg God, God, if you're not God, we're sunk. 
You see, they were desperate for God. You know the problem with us today? We ain't desperate for God. You know, Matt, tell you how I know that? What's the one thing we don't do in our churches anymore? We don't pray. We don't pray. You know what we've done? We've relegated corporate prayer to moments of transition when we move the band on and off the stage. We don't pray to pray anymore. We just pray to change the set where everybody's got their eyes closed. I'm not saying it's wrong to move stuff while we pray. I'm saying it's wrong to just pray to move stuff. What happened to God's people crying out to God because we're so desperate for God to show up that if God doesn't show up, we're sunk? I got to Las Vegas 22 years ago, rolled into town. My first week on the field, I got a telephone call from a Filipino lady named Letty Peralta. Here's what she said. She said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. She said, Pastor, I'm from the Philippines. I moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. She said, I would make money in Hong Kong and send it back to my family in the Philippines. While living in Hong Kong, I met an American family who worked for a major computer corporation in America, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their family. She said, while living with them, I became a part of their family. They became my extended family, so much so that after a period of months, they moved back to America, got all the paperwork, and I moved with them back to America as a part of their family. She said, we settled north of Atlanta, Georgia, in a suburb called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I went to a church there called First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and heard the gospel and the kingdom of God like I'd never heard it before, and it changed my life. But I only got to go there six or seven times, and my family relocated again to Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, I've been in Las Vegas for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? Honest to God, two weeks earlier, my family loaded everything we owned in a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia being sent out from that church to Las Vegas, Nevada. And none of us even knew Letty Peralta existed on planet Earth. 22 years later, we've baptized almost 5,000 people who come to know Jesus Christ right out of Las Vegas, Nevada, first-generation believers. We've had the privilege of sending over 400 people out of our church to start 80 churches in the western United States in the last 22 years. We currently work on four continents around the world. We have 18 people right now in a pipeline with the International Mission Board to plant their lives in some country or culture overseas around the world. And I get a call at least a month, probably more like a week, but I'm going to be safe and make sure I'm not overstating it. At least once a month, I get a call from some church planner. How'd you do it? How does a guy parachute into Vegas from Alabama and see God do something like's happened in Las Vegas at Hope Church. And I'm not trying to be spiritual. I'm not trying to be humble. But here's the honest answer. One lady from the Philippines 22 years ago grabbed a hold of the altar of God. And she didn't let go until God showed up and did what only God could do. And for 22 years, we've been riding a wave of the favor of God's activity. Here's my question today. 
Who's going to be the Liddy Peralta here? When are we going to get desperate? When are we going to need God so bad that it drives us to our knees to beg God to move in power? Tell you why North America has seen Christianity decline. Here's why we don't need God. Vance Havner said it this way the tragedy of the hour is the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. We're comfortable. You go to the other side of the world, they ain't got buildings, they don't have seminary degrees, they don't have resources, they don't have budgets. Let me tell you what they got desperation. And they beg God. And God is moving over there just like He did in the book of Acts. Did you know there have been more people come to faith in Jesus Christ in Iran in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined? That's happening right now. Hundreds and hundreds of people every month in Iran coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't see that on the news, right? It's happening. Here's the last thing I'm done. They have the spirit that produced power. There's a lot we don't know about Acts chapter 2 and what happened there with the movement of the Spirit of God. And listen, we're Baptists. We're afraid of what happened there. We'll never know all that happened there, but here's what I do know. We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God today like we hadn't seen among us in a very long time. And until we have a faith that produces obedience and a passion that unites us, and a desperation that drives us to our knees in prayer, we will not see the wind of the Spirit of God blow in power. But here's what I believe. God is still God. He's still moving. And the same God in Acts 2 is the God today. And if we'll posture our hearts with a faith that says, yes, Lord, a passion that says your kingdom above all else, a desperation that seeks him in prayer. I believe we can see the wind of the Spirit of God move again. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.